Thank you for tuning in with us at Bayou City Fellowship Spring Branch, a community that's radically focused on Jesus. We hope that the message today will equip and inspire you to be more like Jesus as we learn how not to read the Bible. I want to ask you a question today. Have you ever wanted an answer from the Bible that you were afraid it didn't have? Have you ever come to the Bible with questions and were not convinced that within its pages it contained the answer that you were looking for? I was a teacher before I was a pastor. I taught for 10 years, and for most of those years, I taught apologetics and Christian worldview right down the street at Houston Christian High School. Go Mustangs. And one of the things that, one of my favorite aspects of my class and worldview was we had, I had a big questions board, a whiteboard over to the side of my classroom, and my students could come in, and at any point in time, during a class, before class, after class, they come in and scrawl a question on the board that they wanted answered. Um, and this was a, anything that you could possibly imagine, serious and unserious questions, right? I mean, serious ones, you know, why does God allow suffering? Uh, why, you know, how old, is the, how old is the earth? Whatever, things like that. Um, some of the questions were not maybe the ones that you go to seminary for the answers for, okay? Did Adam have a belly button? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, Do men have one or two fewer ribs than women? I'm not not sure I know. Did the snake really talk to Eve? But this is not limited to my students. Do you know that if you Google search, do men and women, if you just stop there, have the same amount of ribs is the fifth result. Okay, look, and look at, look at one through four. We are only marginally more interested in the gender pay gap and how to communicate with the opposite sex. <laughs> this is the ranking of the kinds of questions that keep us up at night. Men and women, same number of ribs, yes or no. Okay, but I want to suggest to you today, and please, please hear me out on this, that there are a great many questions that you have that the Bible has no interest in providing you the answer for. Okay, I want that to sink in. I understand that that is an unsettling statement. I promise you that I believe in the authority of Scripture for all matters pertaining to life and godliness. I promise you that I still hold to the claim of inerrancy. If you're not familiar with that word, that is the claim that the Bible is without error in all of the truths that it espouses. I promise you that I believe in objective truth. Okay, that is the claim, if you're not familiar with that one, that truth is something that is external to us, discovered by us, not something internal that we invent for ourselves. I do believe that. But I think the danger for you and I is far greater if we think that the Bible is a one-stop shop for all, comprehensive, all of the knowledge contained in the universe. And I am going to defend that claim, I promise. I actually think that understanding what the Bible is and is not trying to tell us allows us to see even more 
of our Bibles as trustworthy than we currently do. But don't take my word for it. Um, let's, let's kind of, by way of review, let's talk about some of the real threats if we misunderstand Scripture. Let's throw that slide up there. Remember, we've said if the Bible is a devotional grab bag, that turns the Bible into a fortune cookie to pacify all of our anxieties, worries, and fears. We just go there to kind of assuage our worry, get a little good news blurb from the Bible. If the Bible is a troubleshooting guide, the troubleshooting guide turns the Bible into a quick fix, allows us to sit on the throne of our lives, not the Lord Jesus, and ignore, we get to ignore some of the roots of sin in our own lives. If the Bible is a moral checklist, we will turn the Bible into a heartless critic of all of our best intentions, and it will remove the very intimacy with God that he intends for us to have. Our only hope is if we read the Bible as one unified revelation that leads us to King Jesus. It is a story of God's making and now remaking of the world. And he's going to accomplish that in the life, death, resurrection, and power of the risen Jesus. And he chooses to partner with us in doing that. Chooses to partner with human beings. More on that when we get to Genesis 2, which is going to be our passage for today. Now look, maybe this is all pretty agreeable to you so far. Nothing controversial. We just got to rework the way that I do my quiet times a little bit, right? That we're going, you know, hey, it's fine. I've, I've you know, just kind of flipped to one verse and, and, you know, tried to apply that to my life and that's been my quiet time. But now I just need to kind of augment that. But today we're going to examine the claim that the Bible is not a science textbook, okay? The Bible is not a science textbook, the Bible was never intended to referee our arguments about creation versus evolution. You know how I know that? Because the Bible predates the arguments about creation versus evolution by some two millennia. Okay? If we use it for arguments about geology or astronomy, then I think God looks at how we have minimized its true purpose and elevated our secondary purposes, and I think that grieves him. There was an American physicist, Richard H. Boubet, that had this to say in 1963, 60 years ago, this was his, his comment, if it is assumed without due scriptural support that the purpose of revelation, the purpose of the Bible, is to give mankind a source book of information on all phases of physical, mental, spiritual, sociological, artistic, and scientific life, then we have the greatest difficulty in maintaining the doctrine of an inerrant scripture. What he is saying is this, guys. If you want to go to the Bible for geology, if you want to go to the Bible for sociology, for science, then you are really going to struggle to make sense of some pieces of it. And that means that you are really going to have to jettison the idea that all of the Bible is without error. And that's a problem. Do we not see, do we see the threat of that? So if my fear is this, that if we read the Bible like a science text, 
We will pick and choose the pieces that we want to pay attention to. And then we will forego the pieces that seem helplessly outdated and ill-informed to us. Let me give you some examples. So this isn't just kind of because I say so. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. Okay, this is Hannah's prayer when she realizes that she is going to conceive and bear a son named Samuel. She says in 1 Samuel 2, verse 8, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with the nobleman and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. Okay, what she means is exactly what it sounds like she means. That there are pillars, pillars underneath the earth, and that the Lord sets the earth on those pillars. Now, is that accurate cosmology and astronomy? No, it's not. The earth is not set on giant columns. But that's what the ancient Near Easterners thought. She is speaking out of her, of her understanding, her scientific understanding at the time. And we are to take this verse very seriously. And it's not in error just because Hannah didn't know that we are orbiting around the sun. Because Hannah's not making a statement about cosmology. She's making a statement about God's sovereignty and control over all of creation. He's the one that founded it. He's the one that upholds it. And she is dead accurate on that. And how often are you and I much less convinced about that in our modern enlightened sense? How often do we think that it's actually us that founded the world? Or that it's actually us that are in control? Or that it's all some cosmic accident? Maybe Hannah is clued into something that you and I would do well to remember. But it's not her cosmology. It's her theology. How about Matthew 13? Let's go to Matthew 13, 31 and 32. Jesus says this. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. But when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. Okay, so when I was in high school, I had a friend that wasn't a believer. He said, you know, the Bible's chock full of errors, right? No, I wasn't aware of that. Do and do tell. We'll just go right to Matthew 13, 32. Don't you know you dumb, backward-thinking religious person, that the mustard seed is by no means the smallest of all seeds. Don't you know that there are orchids in South America that are much smaller seeds than the mustard seed? Jesus was wrong. Okay, what do we do with that? Jesus we are not committing the doctrine of inerrancy, the idea that Scripture is without error, does not mean that Jesus has to be a botanist, does not mean that Matthew 13, 32 requires Jesus to come in and say, 
look, I'm going to tell you this, but in like, I don't know, 1,492 some odd years from now, we're going to discover America and they're going to realize that the mustard seed, it's really only the smallest like regional seed, but just go with me on the parable, okay? This is not the way the Bible is written. This is not the way it's designed to function. What Jesus is saying is that there is this seed and it's going to germinate and though it is extremely small, it is going to grow into something that provides cover and refuge for the whole earth. He's talking about the kingdom of God that began when he went into the ground and came back up and sparked something, sparked a new kingdom and a church of his followers that do provide shelter and refuge to people of all nations, all tongues, all over the world. He was right. He was right in his ecclesiology and his understanding of the church. We don't have to say that he's right in his botany. Okay? So if we're read, because we're not reading the Bible like a science textbook, guys. Having said this, there are going to be some of you in the room who are going to be tempted to say, aha, I knew it. I knew this thing was shot full of errors. I knew the Bible couldn't be trusted. I knew that science, not faith, was the true test of knowledge and revelation. But hold on a second there, Bill Nye the science guy. Okay? Una pregunta, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I have a cautionary word for you as well. When Scripture says, while Scripture says nothing about the mechanism, the precise way by which, the timing in which God created the universe and everything in it, it by golly says that he did it. Okay? So I'm not worried about the age of the earth because I know the one that created the earth, the universe, and everything in it. While Scripture does nothing to correct the misinformed or incorrect or uncomplete science of the culture to which it speaks, guess what? It doesn't correct yours either. Let me ask you this. Did the Holy Spirit tap you on the shoulder when you thought Pluto was a planet or wasn't a planet or whatever it is now? I'm not sure I lose track. Okay, did God come and speak when you thought that Sinbad starred in a 90s movie about a genie? You guys familiar with this? You guys know this? Go look up the Mandela effect. Sinbad did not star in that movie. That was Shaq. It was called Kazam, not Shazam. Y'all 90s kids know what I'm talking about. Joseph Schwartz, a Hungarian chemist, said it this way. Of one thing I am sure, if I am around in 20 years to talk about this stuff, and when he says this stuff, he means chemistry, science, okay? I won't be saying the same things as I'm saying now. That's the way science works. Okay, it is the height of chronological arrogance to think not only that thousands of years of human history before you, before us, were just a bunch of dum-dums, but also to think that we are the ones that finally figured it out 
And that 100 years from now or 500 years from now, we will be saying all of the same things that we're saying now about the scientific theory, method, whatever we know about cosmology or cells, biology. No, we most assuredly will not. Okay, so we want to tap the brakes on these trite things like I believe science. Why? Because we're a little We're very skeptical about what they will be saying tomorrow. We know that they were saying something different 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and 500 years ago. And if you are a scientist in the room, you know this. This is not a controversial thing for me to tell you. I'm not anti-science. But science is a method, not a belief system. So humility both in matters of scripture and scientific inquiry, is going to have to be king for us today. So let's do a little exercise on a very misunderstood passage of very non-scientific information. We're going to be in Genesis 2. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2. So this passage has really, it's always been a big deal in scripture. Why? Because it's page one, two, and three of the Bible. And it's going to set up, it's going to be the seedbed and set up so much of the themes and recurring patterns in scripture that are going to keep showing up all the way to the last chapter. But it has been co-opted in the last hundred years to be this billy club, this weapon in discussions of evolution, age of the earth, and things like that. And we're going to try today to recover some of the meaning that I think is most certainly and obviously, as we read it, baked in. Okay? Starting in verse 4. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. Okay. I'm going to do my very best today to avoid the sentence that begins, well, the Hebrew word is this, and that really means this. And here's why, guys. Because our English Bibles, our English translations are quite good. Okay? And I want to build into all of us today a confidence that we can read it if we will read it slowly and attentively, that it is not a secret codex that means something different for you than it meant 4,000 years ago to its original audience, that it is not something that is only accessible to the educated, okay, to the lifelong students of it, that you don't necessarily, although it helps, it's like layers of an onion, it would help to have some Hebrew and Greek. It would give you some dimension, some color, some depth, but it's not necessary to you. And so I'm gonna do my best to avoid that. You guys can hold me to that. Okay, Jose's got a red flag. He's gonna wave it anytime I start that sentence, the Hebrew word means, all right? So we're just gonna read it. Okay, at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub on the field 
had yet grown on the land. Now, hold on. Because I was just reading a chapter ago and the Bible in Genesis 1 says that day three, God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in them according to their kinds. And it was so. This says that no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God hadn't yet made it rain, but we made the man. Now, what in the world? I know that six comes after three. I know that mankind was created on the sixth day. Why, how are you telling me that there's no shrub on the field? Stop. You're reading the Bible like a science textbook. That's not the point of Genesis 2. Let's read. Why? For the Lord God had not made it rain and there was no man to work the ground. We are learning in chapter 2 about not God's design of the whole cosmos, but his calling of mankind. Mankind is going to be made to work the ground. And right now, all we've got is this mist coming up from the ground. We've got, we're about to have rivers. Hang on till about verse eight, nine. We're about to have some rivers, but we've just got this like water everywhere and there's no shrubs growing yet. Why? Because it's gonna be man's responsibility to irrigate this water, this garden, into something that's going to grow shrubs, that's going to grow trees and fruit and flowers and be something that's beautiful and flourishing and be a blessing. That's what we're being told. And that's, I, look, there's no, I'm not, no Hebrew, no Greek. Man's going to work the ground. Well, there you go. So the, man, so the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. So mankind comes from the dust, comes from the earth. How many, yeah, we got some sci-fi fans in here. How many of you guys know that like when, when aliens in those sci-fi movies refer to us as like earthlings? Okay, earthlings would be a good term according to Genesis 2. We're earth creatures. We're earthlings. And he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. Now, what's interesting is that in chapter one, we're told that there are all kinds of beings. There are beings all over the place. There are living creatures that are birds and living creatures that are, uh, that are mammals and all of this winged creatures and stuff. But it's the breath of life that's breathed into man that is different than any other creation. So there's something unique about man. Isn't there? There's something special about mankind. He's distinct from the other creatures. And he's got a vocation. He's got a calling. And that calling is going to be something to do with cultivation, flourishing, working this garden. Okay? So think about that word formed. Okay? No Hebrew here. Is the word formed, does this imply accident? Does this imply mistake? Does this imply incidental? Or does this imply intentional, crafted, handmade? It's formed, it's shaped out of the dust. We've got this pottery type of illustration and language going on here where God is forming man. Okay, so point one. Humans are a thoughtful creation of God, not an accidental byproduct. And you don't need a degree in ancient Near Eastern culture to know that. Although I will tell you 
that if you did, you would find out that every other ancient Near Eastern culture thought of mankind as an accident. They, were, they grew up out of the blood of a dead, vanquished God. And the God that won was like, sure, I guess I could use some slave labor around here. Uh, y'all will do. Okay, so no need for that. You read that in the text all by yourself. But that's a stark contrast to what was being said in the culture at the time. Man is a thoughtful, intentional creation of God, not a byproduct uh, by accident or chance. Let's keep reading. 8 through 17. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedelium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. There it is again. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, so here we go. God, all we got to do is read slowly. We're told in chapter one that we've got some dry ground, didn't we? On, the, on day three, God gathered all the waters. And when he did that, separated and made some dry ground. And inside that dry ground, there is a region called Eden. Think of it as like the state of Texas. Yes, I just compared Texas to the Garden of Eden. Deal with it, those of you who are not native. I'm just kidding. Um, and inside that region of Eden, he planted a garden. Concentric circles. I want you to remember that. Let's get that up on the screen. It's just a very simple illustration. We've got dry ground. We've got Eden. And we've got a garden in Eden. This garden is full of fruit trees that apparently sustain life. We're not yet told how. We're told about four rivers. They go out in all directions. Now, pop quiz, where do rivers come from? Swamps, do they come from down low or they come from up high? They come from up high, okay? So we've got this garden. We've got man in a mountain garden whose job is to work it, okay? So second point. Man's purpose is to serve and preserve, to serve God by preserving the Garden of Eden. His vocation is to be a steward in this place where he is dwelling, apparently with God himself. Not everything in creation looks like this garden. Guys, we've got a garden, we've got Eden, we've got the surrounding dry land. So man's calling and responsibility is going to be to cultivate this garden, to bring about its flourishing so that it can cause blessing to go out to these concentric circles. 
If we were to keep reading in the Bible, you would see this same motif. Let's get that back up there one more time. Turning up over and over, God telling Abraham that he will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That God will cause him to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Jesus tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. So this theme of concentric circles of blessing just keeps popping up, doesn't it? Even in Revelation, we've got uh, a new Jerusalem with a river flowing down from it. Rivers, good things or bad things? They're good things. They provide life. They're a source of water and sustenance, right? So we've got goodness and blessing just coming down from the mountain of God. And God, in his gracious nature, partners with this earthling to bring about even more blessing. God doesn't want to do it by himself. He wants to partner with man in doing that. It's a beautiful thing. But not everything is quite as it should be in the garden. Let's keep reading. We're going to finish up the chapter on this. Then the Lord God said in verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. Before the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother, or sorry, yeah, and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. I really wish that I had time to go in on this word helper, but for now we'll have to simply say that every other time you see the word helper, just if you just did a word, a word search, if you just got into your uh, online Bible, said search helper, okay? No Hebrew, no Greek. I'm not doing that to you guys. Search helper. So the vast majority of the uses of the word helper in the Old Testament are God applying, identifying himself as the helper of Israel. But we get this so upside down. How many of us, ladies, how many of you have come, have come through your whole life thinking that this helper was a diminutive, condescending term? Well, if we're reading the Bible, it is anything but. God gives it to himself. You think that's diminutive? No. This is another being providing for the man what he cannot provide for himself. It's not good that he would be alone. So I will find a partner corresponding to him, a helper 
corresponding to him. It's going to be like him in what respect? Well, in the respect that she's also going to be part of tending and keeping the garden. But different. Corresponding yet distinct. So remember, what was man's role? To serve and preserve. So man is naming these animals, looking for a partner. And look, this isn't about intimacy or biology, guys. We're not trying to reproduce the species. This is just saying that aardvark, aardvark's role in creation is not to tend and keep. Okay? Does that make sense? Elephant's role is not to tend and keep the garden. We need someone else to do that. And so... We're taking this rib. And honestly, guys, the first time that I was in like middle school and read this passage, I went, wait, wait, is it like, what, where, which one? You know, never mind that like if I lost a thumb and had a child, that child would not be thumbless. I wasn't thinking through that in middle school, okay? The purpose of this rib statement is not biological. It's not scientific. God takes this rib, not something from the head, to dominate, not something from the feet to be subservient, but from the side to partner, to come alongside in the vocation of cultivating the garden and causing it to be a blessing. So the man and woman, this is your third point, man and woman are in covenant with both God and with one another to bring about blessing to all creation. They're in partnership with one another. They're in partnership with God to bring about this kind of blessing and flourishing to all of creation. So maybe you're asking yourself, okay, so what? Big deal. This is a nice exercise. What do I do with this? And that's fair. I understand that question. But I just want to ask you, is that, is this so far, partnering with other humans in, a, in your spouse, if you have one, to bring about blessing and flourishing and goodness to all of creation. Is that how you live your life? Okay, do you see your vocation? Do you see your neighborhood as an opportunity for you to bring about blessing to the people geographically nearest to you who are hurting and broken in need of community and in need of blessing. Do you see that? Or do we struggle to even remember our neighbor's names? Do you go to work and do you see your job, your like 40 hour, your nine to five vocation as an opportunity to leverage the goodness of the kingdom of God and cause it your job to bless other people. Where are the shortcomings? Where are the pitfalls? Where are the injustices? And do you have an opportunity because of the position that you hold in your workplace to correct those, to bring about blessing in those areas? Because Genesis 2 says that's exactly what God put us here to do. Not to be gardeners. I mean, maybe if you're a gardener, then bring about blessing in your garden. If you're a rancher, bring about blessing at your ranch. But if you're an accountant and you see that there is mismanagement and brokenness in your company, are you able to leverage your role, your influence 
to correct that. Because that would be, if you could do that, that would be a window, an inbreaking of the kingdom of God in your workplace. Look, I know that sometimes it is just the best that we can do just to get to work in the morning in the first place. I know, that how, I know how easy it is to just say, this is, my, this is where I'm punching the clock. This is where I'm paying the bills, right? But that is not what Genesis 2 tells you your real vocation, your real calling is. It's not. And if we read it like a science textbook, we will miss that. If we make it about the age of the earth and whether or not shrubs existed before the creation of man, we are just piddling around in a sandbox when God is inviting us to, as C.S. Lewis said, a holiday at the sea. We don't even know the depth of the implication that this has on our marriages, on our families, on our communities, on our jobs, on our churches. And we're just going, well, I'm kind of an old, an old earth, you know, young biosphere guy. You know, I don't know about those theistic evolutionary types, you know. We're just having arguments about things that are secondary. When Genesis 2, from the beginning and irrespective of our scientific theories, says that our vocation is to partner with God and cause blessing to come to all of creation. That's what we're there for. That's the question. Why do I exist and how does God want to partner with me? is not a question that is bound to your science, to your astronomy. One of the key phrases that we used to teach our students in senior Bible class was this. We used to say, you cannot know what it means until you understand what it meant. You cannot know what it means until you understand what it meant. What that means is that we have to come to the Bible first asking what it would have meant to its original audience from its original author, both human and divine, before we take the second step of then saying, okay, well then how does that apply to me? And that is a challenging task. It really is a challenging task that we're up against. But if we shift our focus from asking about belly buttons in the age of the earth and we're able to focus on what God has been trying to tell us all along about who he is, what he's like, why he made us and how he wants to partner with us. We'll see that his desire was to walk with us intimately with Adam and Eve. It was in the cool of the day, stroll through the garden, teaching them how to manage his world with wisdom and skill. That's what it was always about. In two weeks, I'm gonna uh, intro our Proverbs series and we're gonna tie this idea of wisdom that God is giving us through somehow through the tree of life. We're gonna connect that through King Solomon all the way to Proverbs before we get into Proverbs of our summer series. But that's what God has in mind for us to patiently depend on him for that. 
for that wisdom, not to grab it on our own terms. That's Genesis 3. That's the fall. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but to patiently depend on him for it. And he says that community is going to be required to do that. Both like communities and in, he says, in, for those of us that are called to it, the marriage union. It's a lifetime commitment to someone to partner with God in co-creating. That means tending and keeping and flourishing his good creation and also procreation, raising up the next generation to do that same thing. But if we are too focused on dissecting the Bible for a list of scientific facts, we will miss out. Instead of dissecting, we ought to be beholding God, his truth, his goodness, his beauty, and allowing it to transform our lives. And those words, these words in Genesis 2 have massive implications for us today but we will miss them entirely if we are not reading the Bible as one unified revelation that leads to Jesus. Because guess what, gang? Jesus is going to come in and he's going to fulfill that calling to bring about a blessing to all of creation. He's going to come in as the one who truly lives out the human vocation. He's going to come and he's going to take people who are sick people who are hurting, people who are on the margins, people who are blind, people who are demon-possessed, and he is going to bring about blessing in their lives. Because he's partnered with his father and he's doing the will of his father. And if we had time, we would be able to trace that through line from Genesis through to the gospel of Jesus and on into Revelation and new creation where we're all going to be doing this still. The kingdom of heaven is less about you and I uh, with white robes and toga, you know, togas and harps and just an eternal praise chorus. It is more about this idea of co-creating with God, bringing about blessing and new creation without the effects of the fall. Can you imagine your job? Can you imagine your relationships? Can you imagine the depth the intimacy, the goodness that would come if we didn't have the effects of the fall. That's heaven. That's what it looks like when man dwells with God again. And yes, we do praise him because this is the type of God he is that would cause that kind of blessing, that would involve us in that kind of life. One unified story that leads to King Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I pray that as we read your word, as we study it, as we allow it to transform our imagination, our categories for for how we live, God, I pray that today would be a good kind of disruption, that we would come to Scripture on your terms, on its terms, that we wouldn't impose our questions on it until we're ready to listen to the questions that it's asking and answering. God, we thank you so much that you would be so gracious and generous. You would delegate the act of bringing about blessing to your world that 
to us that you would partner with us in doing that. We are so easily tempted to shrink back into our own tribes, our own nuclear families, our own comfort zones, and to refuse that calling that you have had for us from the very beginning. Help us to live with courage, knowing that that is your desire for us. And I pray that every page of scripture would just scream your truth, your goodness, your beauty to us. We would be moved by it, compelled to follow you, King Jesus. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You guys can stand. Uh, ask the prayer team to come up on our left and our right. Um, really just an open call. Guys, if there is anything uh, going on in your life this week, the troubles, the worries, uh, the cares of this world that you haven't uh, brought to a friend uh, in prayer, for prayer, uh, I'd ask that this would be the time uh, to do that, that you would truly uh, lean on the faith of a fellow brother or sister in Christ, allow them to pray for you, and then we're going to continue to worship together. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that you feel encouraged. To stay up to date with our current sermon series, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to find more ways to get involved with the Bayou City family, visit us online at bayoucityfellowship.com or download the Bayou City Fellowship Spring Branch app to find community in the body of Christ.